this is this is something I can do, and this is something I'm highly motivated to do. Highly motivated, highly self-motivated. Um, I mean, no one has to drag me out of bed at six o'clock to go to my desk. I'm I'm there. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Consider it self-improvement that doesn't take itself too seriously. Thanks for being here. Welcome, fellow human. Thank you so much for listening to this episode one of my brand new podcast, Humans in Love. I couldn't be more excited to be speaking to you today and to finally be launching this podcast and getting this new project off the ground. It's been a long time coming. And today's guest will be no stranger to you if you are familiar with my old podcast, Travels and Music. Mark Lewison is the world's leading authority on the Beatles. He's the author of Tune In, which is the first volume of his three, possibly four-part new biography of the band, which... I believe will stand the test of time as the definitive statement on the greatest rock and roll band of all time, the Beatles. And he was also featured on episode one of my old podcast, Travels and Music. So I thought it was only appropriate to feature Mark on episode one of this new podcast, Humans in Love. In today's interview, we get into all kinds of things about the Beatles. Um, but for me, the most interesting part of the podcast is when we talk about Mark the man, Mark the human being, Mark the world's leading Beatles historian, like what is that? What is that like? What does that kind of pressure do to you? Uh, what are the challenges involved in a project like this? How do you maintain some semblance of uh, of work life balance? For my money, that's the most interesting part of this podcast. And Mark was very frank and very open uh, in my discussion with him. I was traveling in London recently, and he was nice enough to give me some time, and we connected at the British Library. And that conversation is featured in part one of today's episode. But part two, uh, which you can find right now, it's launched today as well, features another Skype conversation that we had about a week ago. So there was more that I wanted to talk about, and I feel like it was too long to put it all in one, in one episode, all of our conversations. So I split this one up into part A and part B. A quick note before we get started, I won't bother you with ads and interruptions during our conversation, but I'll say now, ratings and reviews are absolutely critical for show success in these early days, you know, the first two months of launch in particular. So if you enjoy this episode, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review as soon as you can. Those reviews mean a great deal to me, and they will provide the boost I need to hopefully get on the iTunes new noteworthy charts. So as soon as you can, it would mean a lot to me if you could leave a rating and a review. Another note that we recorded this conversation in what was mostly a quiet hallway at the British Library. But towards the end, there's a little bit of noise, a little bit of background noise, but I did some editing, and I think the sound turned out pretty good overall. So hopefully it'll be okay for you too. Thank you so much for listening, and please enjoy episode one, featuring part A of my conversation with the world's leading authority on the Beatles, Mr. Mark Lewison. Okay, well, we're alive. Mark, thank you so much for making time for me today in this corner of the British Library. That's all right. <laughs> nice to find a quiet space if, for how long it lasts. It is, yeah. We'll see how long we get. Um, 
Well, the first thing I'd love to just know about is you went to India recently. Why did you end up there and what, what was your trip like? I went there to participate in the making of a film, um, working title, The Beatles in India, uh, but it may not, may not ultimately be titled that. And it um, is principally about, well, it is about the Beatles in India and mostly, therefore, about their 1968 visit to Rishikesh. But also we were looking at the Beatles there in 66 and George Harrison's trips in 66 and 68 and John and Yoko were there too in 1969. So we touched upon all of that, but I think the the main element of the film will be um, the Beatles' study of transcendental meditation in Rishikesh and um, the film will also look at meditation generally so it isn't just a Beatles film it's about what it was that they were looking for. This film is being made um, by Paul Saltzman the Canadian filmmaker um, who was with the Beatles in Rishikesh uh, in 1968 and um, has had a long 50 plus year career in films. I believe he's a, an Emmy Award winning director um, based in Canada still. And um, this is very much his film about his journey uh, as well as the Beatles journey. So he was, he's making the film and I was with him throughout the trip to India. I know Paul a little bit. I interviewed him for my, my last podcast. Yeah, fascinating guy. I might have to try to interview him again about this, this new film. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I'm sure he'll be pleased to do that because it's a subject that's dear to his heart and the film is being made in the right way by the right people. Um, Paul in particular, but also the other people involved in the making of the film. It, it seems to be the right kind of project for me to have, have an involvement with. Uh, and what it enabled was me to go to India. Not that I was prevented from going there before, but I just hadn't made the trip. Uh, and when I went there for the filming of, of this movie, um, it was the right way to go to see it with the right people. And it was, um, it was a great trip. Did you make it to Rishikesh? Oh, yes, very much so. Rishikesh was not the only place on the agenda. We went to Delhi and to Mumbai. Um, but we certainly went to Rishikesh. And, and that, for me, was the, the highlight of the trip because I had no... It was the strangest thing. Rishikesh, Rishikesh occurred in the Beatles' history in, in 1968, by which point I was nine going on ten and very much following what was happening, but seeing it through a child's eyes. Um, a couple of the weekly British music papers, Record Mirror and Disc, uh, had colour photogra- ph- photography by then. These newspapers typically were black and white. And because they had colour pictures of the Beatles in India looking so different, um, I cut them out at the time and kept them in a scrapbook. Um, and so literally for 50 years, I've been looking at those and other pictures of the Beatles there. And I could never quite make any sense of what it was like, really. You know, I just knew it through these photographs and the odd bit of newsreel film. And to actually step into the place, to go to the ashram, to walk around it, to feel its peace, to smell it, to hear it, to see it, to experience it 3D was quite revelatory, really. And I am, as a writer anyway, keen to go to the places that I write about. And I I know now, having been to Rishikesh, that if I hadn't gone 
the writing of it would not be as good as I now know it can be. It'll now have an extra dimension that I couldn't have given it had I not been. That's really interesting to me that you were so into the Beatles even at that age and you were conscious of the, that they were going to India and like you probably had no idea what meditation was or anything, but there was something that sparked that hey, they're doing something interesting here. Well, the Beatles introduced the word meditation into my vocabulary as I'm sure they introduced it to many other people's. Um, they were, as I often say of the Beatles, even when they weren't doing things for the first time um, of anybody, um, they were popularizing something that had been around a while. So meditation, obviously, is, is, is not exactly a new, a new discipline or a new study um, or a new method of relaxation. But undoubtedly, the Beatles doing it made a lot of people aware of it for the first time. But for me, the photographs of Rishikesh, they might as well... I know it was India. I knew it was India. Uh, and I knew where India was on the map. And I knew that people could travel, as indeed the Beatles had. They got on an airplane and gone there. But I never considered that I could go. Not because it was forbidden to me in any way, but in my head there was this kind of a barrier there that Rishikesh might as well have been on another planet <laughs> rather than just eight hours flight away from London. Um, but it isn't on another planet. What it is is a beautiful spot above the Ganges, um, just as it flows out of the Himalayas, in the middle of a tiger reserve, with literally, as I heard with my own ears, the sound of elephants in the background whilst you're walking around the place. Nowhere near home, that's for sure. Not for me. But not that far away either. And I needed to realize that there isn't actually a barrier separating it from anywhere else. It's, it's attainable and visitable by anybody. Did you happen to see monkeys doing it in the road? Because I've seen that many times. <laughs> to me, it's a part of the experience. It's an important part of the experience. Yeah, um, I looked, but they wouldn't perform for me. What can I say? Um, but I did meet the monkey. The moment we arrived there, we were, um, there is now, the ashram is now for the first time um, uh, recognized as being a place where tourists will visit. Uh, it, it has its own, it's, it's now being looked after. Um, and it has an entrance, and you, if you want to go in it, you have to pay, So and that money is used towards its upkeep. And when we arrived, obviously they knew we were coming because it was a film unit. Um, we were garlanded in the traditional oh, well. Indian manner. And so we were standing there at the gateway uh, doing an interview on camera with these garlands of marigolds around our neck. And, and we'd only been there five minutes and a monkey came up and snatched it off my neck, just <laughs> literally pulled at the garland sufficiently to, to break it. <laughs> Uh, and then to tear off into the trees with it and eat it. <laughs> so I met a monkey almost immediately. They weren't doing it in the road, but they were nicking my flowers. <laughs> I was also robbed by a monkey in Rishikesh walking down the street one day with a bag of bananas, and I <laughs> felt something tug and it was gone. No one believes me. I swear I was robbed. <laughs> the monkey literally took my bananas. Yeah. Um, one of the things I've always been very, very interested in is India in the British imagination, um, particularly after colonialism after 1947 and as a young person growing up sort of kind of in the wake of of uh, British colonialism in India um, well just more generally did India live up to your expectations did you feel like um, 
it was as you'd ima imagined it? Or I didn't really have any preconceived ideas, but you know, like anybody else, I'd seen documentaries and travelogues and films about the natural life there and about city life. Um, so I wasn't unaware of it. But certainly when I got there, we arrived initially in Mumbai and stayed. We did it all, all the right things. We stayed in the same hotel where George and Patty stayed. And indeed, later, John and Yoko in, in Mumbai, the Taj Mahal, yeah. right opposite the gateway, um, which was a fantastic place to be. Um, but stepping out from there into the streets of onto the streets of Mumbai it was breathtaking um, because it's nowhere like home yes, and um, I, it's actually after the trip was over that I continuing my research read a quote from Ringo if not not too long ago in which he said that though he had traveled to many countries by the time the Beatles went to India in initially 66 um, they were all places recognizable to him in the way that the culture was lived and the people went about their daily lives. So talking of America and talking of Canada and talking of European countries and so on, Australia and New Zealand. Um, but when he went to India, it, he knew he was far from home. He knew he was abroad. It was a foreign place. Because although the British imprint there is still pronounced in terms of its architecture and certain ways of life like cricket being the national sport for example um it, it really isn't anywhere like home it does smell different it sounds different it's so crowded obviously the poverty is is quite breathtaking um but it is extraordinary i felt safe there i walked as much as i could i took a lot of photographs um went to local restaurants didn't only do the touristy things went into somebody's house um, went into a couple of ashrams, um, tried to experience it as much as I could, and it really is foreign. Mm. Yeah, I remember going there, and for me, the, the initial impression was very much the smell. I'd never smelled anything quite like that, that mix of just all matter of, you know, <laughs> everything you can imagine. Yeah. And I remember thinking it smells as old as it is, you know, like, cities like Varanasi or some of the oldest cities in the world and like yes. it's a very old place and it, yeah, the smell for me is always the first thing I think of when I think of going back to India and you've recovered from your deli belly which is uh, very good so actually I didn't get deli belly I was so careful not to get deli belly but I got something else instead um, oh. I just without obviously knowing it I picked up a, some kind of bacterial infection oh, which began to lay me low on about day three of the of the trip we were there for 11 days and because most days I was being filmed speaking, um, so if you want, I mean, the film, I don't know how it's going to be edited, but it, I've got the raw film of it on my computer. And if I watch it in, in chronological order, in sequence, I can see myself becoming more ill by the day. And my, my main bit to camera was really on the last day in Rishikesh, and I was in quite a poor state by then. So that's just one of the ironies of life. I've never, not been in a film before. Uh, and I know that this film, which will, you know, exist long after I do, will forever show me unwell. <laughs> but hey, that's life. <laughs> it certainly is, yeah. Um, well, just to give me and others kind of a snapshot of, of what your life is like as a historian, as a researcher, as a writer. What, just curious, what were you doing at the British Library today? What are you doing here? 
Um, well, the British Library is something like a second home for me um, because it is the national library of, of my home country. Uh, and it is, we have here, um, and we always have had here for centuries now, a system of what they call legal deposit, which means that if you publish a book or publish a newspaper or magazine or piece of music or whatever it might be, you have to deposit a copy in the National Library. The consequence of that over two or three centuries is that this place has a lot of material. And no matter how much one might know about any subject, there's always more to learn. Um, so I come here in particular to look at back issues of newspapers, magazines, to look at books that are hard to find. Um, and this afternoon, funnily enough, uh, apropos our conversation, I was looking at um, uh, an Indian newspaper on microfilm. Mm. Um, because the Beatles had quite a few dalliances with India from 66 onwards. Uh, and although you furnished me very kindly a few years ago with a great collection of Indian newspaper scans uh, and photographs, um, there is more. And I, now, I, I need to see it all. Uh, and because of the trip that I've just taken to India, it's, it's fresh for me. And although 1968 is, for me, volume three, and I haven't yet um, published volume two, um, you can't strictly delineate like that in terms of research because it could be that in 68 they talked about something that pre, you know go, goes back to 63, 4, 5, 6, back to their childhood, and that often happens, in fact. So I need to look at things for all the years, no matter what period I'm writing. So um, that's what I was doing. I was looking at microfilm of Indian newspapers, most of which are here. Astonishing collection of, of newspapers. Last time I was here, I was looking at the Hindustan Standard. Yep. Um, because it had a, an important piece that was published long after the Beatles had left Rishikesh, uh, but which I knew about. So I, I wasn't just turning every page. I actually was looking specifically for something. But the the reach of the British Empire, as was is such that even after countries left the empire, they were still within the Commonwealth. And um, this place continues to gather their newspapers. Paul McCartney, in 1966, paid a trip to Nairobi. I didn't know that. Yeah, a holiday to Kenya. And um, the Kenya newspapers are here. Now, I don't know whether they're in any library in Kenya, but I don't need to go there and check because they're here. And you can order them up and, you know, there was good reportage of Paul's visit, which told me more about his trip to Kenya than I've ever read anywhere else. Gave me the true detail of what he did and when he did it and how he was approachable or not approachable during that trip. So um, that was, you know, last time I came here, I found that. That is within the next book I'm writing. So the research is, it's hard to draw a line under it. Um, because there is so much of it to be done. Sure. I'd, I'd like to know more about your creative process. You know, I, re I read a lot. I love books about writing and writers on writing and all that. And many of my favorite writers, not all, but many of them, write every day. They really make it a point to write every single day. Do you subscribe to that philosophy? Do you make it a point to sit down at your desk every day and hammer out 500 or 1,000 words or whatever? Like, what, what is your philosophy when it comes to staying consistent with your work? 
are the the writers you've just mentioned are they principally fiction writers? Yes, because to me there's a a, a huge difference, all the difference in the world between that discipline of ensuring that every day you you stay in the zone by writing some quantity of words um, and what I do, which is since I mean as a historian, a lot of historians or biographers have somebody else do their research for them. Um, I don't. I'm a one-man band. I do it all, the entire project. That's amazing to me, really, that you don't have a research assistant. No. No, I, I, when I can, when I have sufficient funds, I have people do some organizing of things for me, titling of things, cataloging, transferring, digital transfers, correction of images, that kind of thing. But otherwise... No, this book is, is 100% me, these books. And so because it's a history, um, I don't feel that it would be right for me to write anything until I've got my materials in the right order. So my method is quite straightforward. I research to the nth degree. Then I look at what I've got. I assemble a structure. And then I shut the door. And I don't come out until it's done, which may take three or four years. Um, but and, and during the course of writing, you will find new things that need to be researched. You need to oh, go and get a bit more on this. Is there anything on that that I could possibly find? It's only when you tie up your disparate strands of research that a pattern or a picture really emerges. And then you can see where you're light and you might need to go and do bits of further research. But for the most part, it's done. Um, and I don't really see the wisdom of writing any part of that story until I've got the structure finalized because I'll only have to undo it anyway. So I might as well gather it all together and then write. So the gathering process is, is what takes the lion's share of the time. The writing isn't exactly quick, but the research is years and years and years and years and years. And, and that's what I've been doing for years and years and years and years and years. <laughs> right. I mean, I started this entire project in 2003. It's now 2018. That's 15 years ago. The, re the writing of Volume 1 took three years. And that was after you'd, after you'd gathered most of the research for that book? Yes. Yeah, wow. yeah. So you could say that in the 15 years I've been doing this, I've been doing 12 years, nothing but research, and three years of writing. Soon, the writing phase volume two will begin uh, to, to balance that up a little bit more. But there's undoubtedly more research than writing time. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can spend two, three hours looking for one thing to write about that. Might, I mean, the, the information gained might be a line, mm. but it's, it, it's an important line. Um, and I certainly don't want to write the book knowing that I could have found that line and didn't bother. So, it, you know, it takes time. Certainly. I, listening to you speak, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm thinking somewhat about my own experience writing master's theses, which is not nearly as big as what you've done, but it's, it's an intense project. Yeah. And there's always the danger of that project taking over your life, um, where it becomes, you know, you're kind of eating, living, breathe, breathing, sleeping this project. What does your family think of, of your work? And... and does your wife hate the Beatles at this point? Like, I'm really very curious about that. Um, well, I should really ask her that one. <laughs> no, I think I can safely say what she does think on that one. 
Um, well, I've got two uh, boys, two children, and they're both men now. They're both grown-up men who have flown the coop. Uh, one of them lives in um, Taiwan and the other one lives in Finland. The eldest one is in Finland, the youngest one is in Taiwan. <clears throat> so, um, you know, in terms of home life, it's just me and my wife. And um, all the time that she's known me, I've worked from home. So our domestic pattern is that we see each other pretty much any time. You know, I'm not someone who goes off to an office somewhere and comes back late. Um, so we we have that familiarity of seeing each other all the time. Um, although mostly I'm squirreled away quietly in, in my office. Um, but she'll be bringing me tea and we have, you know, confrontations during the day. That's probably the wrong word. We have um, <laughs> not confrontations. Freudian slip? Or? <laughs> oh, no, no, no Freudian slip. We have, you know, I, I, we, we pass like ships in the night or mm. the day. So that's all fine, and she doesn't hate the Beatles at all. She um, she she grew up as a as a Beatles fan, um, but on a different plane because she was living in South Africa and they didn't really have much knowledge of what was happening really over there. Um, that's interesting. I'd yeah. love to talk to her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been looking at the South African newspapers here in the British Library, um, most of which are original papers, not even microfilm, so you can really turn wow. the pages. Uh, because they were the Beatles were banned on South African broadcasting uh, by the SABC, the South African Broadcasting Corporation, in '66, uh, after um, the, the so-called "Bigger Than Jesus" mm. um, rumpus um, flared up in August 1966, and they weren't allowed back on the radio or television. Well, there was, there was no television there till I think '77, so they they didn't see them really. Um, but they couldn't even hear them on the main SABC radio um, until 1971. So I was interested to see how the South African newspapers reflected um, the national broadcaster's point of view, because that is within the, the next book I'm writing. So that's proper, you know, now research for me. Um, but she's very tolerant of, of the fact that my job is a, is a kind of all-consuming job. Um, obviously, we have, we have a good marriage within it, but um, she recognizes that a job like this isn't really a nine-to-five job. And it has... I, I do kind of um, allow it to, to monopolize most of my time. Um, and a job like this needs to. You can't just switch off. Because you need to turn things over in your mind. And, you know, I might go to bed and then suddenly get up and dictate something into my little digital recorder, a thought, a note that, that I, I want to capture before it disappears. So, you know, it's when you immerse yourself so thoroughly in a subject, it is there constantly. But I'm perfectly happy about that. And the book is the, the books are the better for it. And I would imagine there's new information coming in just constantly. I mean, emails from people like me saying, hey, you're doing this project, have you seen this? I imagine it never stops. And, and the other thing I wanted to know about too, after Tune In came out, the first book, mm. did you get a wave of, hey, you know, why didn't you write about this? Or I've got this, or have you seen this? Like, was there still, even after all that time research, things that you had, not, not missed, that's the wrong word, but things that uh, you weren't aware of when you wrote the book? Yeah, inevitably so. Um, I mean, there's two parts to that question. The first part is, yes, 
I do receive a lot of, I say I write the books on my own or do them entirely on my own, and that's true, but there are a lot of very good people out there, kind people who have things and they are willing to share them with me. I either have you seen this that's just come up, a link to a website or a, a photograph or whatever it might be, um, or indeed it's something from their own collection. The thing about the Beatles is the paper trail is, is very rich and deep. Um, and I am trying to find every piece of paper that's out there because I, I'm, I, I want this to be a documented history. Um, not, I mean, it's important that there is plenty of spoken voices in this book and, and certainly like tune in there will be. But I, I want to ensure accuracy by using documents as much as possible. And, and they really are, have been overlooked significantly by all other writers. To me, they are the absolute bedrock of what I'm doing. So a lot of people out there have collections of things that might include pieces of paper that contain information I haven't seen and don't know about. So there is actually an appeal in the back of the first book, Tune In, and there will be in the back of the second and the third for people who have things that they think I might not know about to, to volunteer them. I don't need to see the original pieces, a scan will do, a photocopy, a, a snap with a phone. I just need to see the content of whatever that piece of paper says. You know, I'm one of those guys who, um, when things come up for auction, beat set of Beatles autographs, and it's, you know, autographs on the back of a script or a back of a letter or something like that. Sod the autographs. I mean, I know what they look like. <laughs> I want to know what's on the other side of that piece oh, of paper. Right. That's much more interesting for me. So um, I'm, I'm continually looking, and I do have a lot of emails every day of, of people who say, this might interest you, that might interest you, and I'm really grateful for all of those. And that takes up a considerable chunk. I, I, I typically start work about 6 o'clock in the morning, and I'm, I'm emailing till a, about 9 just to cope with the previous day's emails, which I tried not to answer when they came in because it would have been too much of a distraction. But it's all, it's all research time, really. Um, and there's a lot of um, thanking people, a lot of asking people, a lot of chasing leads. Uh, I'm, I won't go into detail, but I'm presently talking to the sister of a man who worked for the Beatles, who died quite young, before he was ever interviewed, I just need to know more about this man. Uh, and in having finally made email contact with her, she says, I have some pieces of paper. I don't know what they are yet, but obviously in the next few days, I'll be endeavoring to find out what they are. So this is how the day-to-day -day life goes on. As for the, the second part of the question, um, these books I'm writing are not designed to close down the subject. They're designed actually to open it up. Right. Um, and no matter how many years you research something, you can't possibly know every place where there is something to find. So, and, and in, in a sense, it's the book itself that, that brings stuff out of the woodwork. So after Tune In was published, which in its fullest form is 1,700 pages, and takes the, the story up to the brink of the Beatles' great breakthrough. So it's, it's, it's just the formative period, and it's that big. Um, you would think it has everything in it, but no, because when the book came out, I had all sorts of people contact me to say, ah, I've got this, which I couldn't ever have known about or known where to look for it. 
Um, but I accept that that's, you know, I'm, I'm telling, I'm piece, piecing together people's lives, uh, but you can't know where all the pieces are. So, for example, um, Ringo, who was never a great letter writer because English, having missed so much schooling, English was never his strong suit. Um, turns out that he met a girl at, um, I think, Butlin's holiday camp the first time that Rory Storm and the Hurricanes went there in 1960. And they obviously had some kind of a, a fling for a week or two and then kept in touch. And wherever he was for the next couple of years, he wrote her letters and she kept them all. Uh, and then shortly after TuneIn came out, unrelated to its publication, she sold them. Uh, and I not only got photocopies of all the letters, but I got her phone number and I phoned her up and interviewed her. Got her story. Well, I would love to have included that in the book, but I simply didn't know about it. So um, I have that and much else um, ready to fold into a, an update at some point. But I'm not in any hurry to update them. I, I, I really want to get all three volumes of the trilogy out before I start to revise anything. But there will be scope for it because there is still more out there. For sure, yeah, it's kind of endless. Uh, on that note, I mean, how many times a day do you get Beatles obsessives asking you when's volume two coming out? <laughs> In, are they Beatles obsessives? Um, they're, they're people. Perhaps they're just anno annoying people. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. They're not annoying at all. There is one interesting element to it, which I'll come to in a moment. But um, no, I think I'm 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 being asked that question a lot in by the same in the same way and by the same kind of people that I would be asking of another author. Look, I've started something, a trilogy, and in a sense I've left them dangling uh, at the end of 1962 on New Year's Eve. Um, I would want to know what's going to come next and when it's coming, more to the point, when can I read this book? <clears throat> so I do get quite a lot of that. The interesting thing is that it started, to, it's, what is it now, it's four and a half years since TuneIn was published. Just of late, it started to get a little bit more aggressive. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I've started to have people... It, it's always been a kind of pointed question. Um, but just lately, there's been a kind of a... I've noticed a degree of aggression creeping into the question as well. Um I know that whenever I, whenever I'm seen to be doing anything that is not 100% as far as they're concerned, working on the book, <laughs> um, I get kind of slapped by a few people. What they don't know is that it's all book related. Um, and even the trip to India, which is, as it might seem to be, this why are you doing getting, being in a film? Well, that film took me to India. It took me to, to Delhi, it took me into the shop where they went in 66, it took me to the hotel where they were staying, it took me into the room, in fact, where they where they stayed, it took me to to look at Indian newspapers for that, for that trip that they made, and so on. So it's all research for the books, really, but people are getting a bit tetchy now. Um, How dare you have a life, Mark? Well, the amazing thing is, I don't have much of a life beyond <laughs> these books, and I'm perfectly happy about that. But um, and and the people who are asking the question are asking for the best reasons of all. I mean, it's you know, sure. 
I, I, I know the Oscar Wilde quote via Monty Python, but isn't it so that you know there's only one thing worse than being talked about, and that's not being yeah. talked about? Um, so I'm, you know, if no one was asking where Volume Two is, I'd think I hadn't done my job properly on Volume One. It's a measure of the fact that that book was the strong object that it is, um, that people are wanting the next one. But though the most of the people who are asking have no real notion of of the work that goes into a book like this, uh, and they didn't really see Volume One coming. Uh, it was reported that I was writing it, but essentially, until people read it, they didn't realise what I was doing, and that had taken ten years. Um, so, and I'm, you know, although I had done quite a bit of the research of Volume Two, uh, there's significant amounts. Uh, I've done in in the last four years since Tune In came out. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm not dragging my heels in any way. I, in my own self-interest, I need to finish it. Um, I'm not getting any younger. Um, but uh, these things can't be done quickly. The, the nature of them is that they are thorough and time-consuming. It's my time they're consuming, nobody else's. Um, and when eventually these th these books are published, then they will be out there. And the fact that along the way they took a year younger, longer than somebody thought they should have done will be irrelevant. Going back to when Volume 1 came out, you put invest all of this time, effort, into this massive project. I'd really like to know, how did you feel on the eve of the book's publication, when it was about to come out? Like, what, what were you thinking? Were you nervous at all? Were you relieved that it was just about that book, that project was over? Like, how did you feel? Um, because it's a trilogy, it was just like doing the first lap of a race, really. So, I, I, I mean, the, the only time I'll breast the finishing tape is, is at the end of Volume 3, <clears throat> or maybe Volume 4, because this trilogy might end up having four parts. Oh, wow. Um, if I... If I still have my health, um, 10 or 12 or whatever, however number of many number of years it is from now. So, um, no, I, I just remember being, there was, the, the, the writing process is, is on a book like this. First of all, it's all the years of research. Then it's all the years of writing. And then you nurse it through production. And I'm not a hands-off author. My publishers always thankfully accept the fact that the best way of keeping me happy is to let me be part of all the processes mm. which I am and I'm good at all that kind of stuff uh, and I had a great team at the publishers to to help it into um, fruition as well so um, eventually there was such a build-up to it in terms of proofs and and then you go into the publicity stage and some of the publicity these days is quite long in advance so it just kind of was all seamless, really. And eventually it came out and there was, there was a great launch for it in Liverpool, um, which was the right place to launch that book. Um, a, a tremendous launch party. I mean, not only the best I've been to, but most of the people, if not all the people there, said it was you know one for their memories as well. And, um, and then some months of promotion, but I was already very much focused on volume two i mean i remember doing some of the interviews for the promotion of volume one here at the library when i was already you know head down on volume two because there's no time really for holidays or breaks otherwise the books will take 
even longer than they are. So um, it was great to have it out. I knew that, that I've heard artists, recording artists say that when they've made a good album, they know it. Mm. And I knew I'd written a good book. I knew that what I said at the outset of the entire project, which was that I felt that the Beatles story had never been told properly and I was going to have a go at doing just that. Uh, and I knew that I had accomplished that with the first volume. Thankfully, the reviews and the public acclamation for it bore that out, but I knew already that it, I had done what I set out to achieve. Um, but I've now got that challenge again for volume two, which is actually, if anything, a harder task than the first book. Much harder, really. Um, and it's still in front of me. And I'm quite a bit older than I was when I was doing Tune In. Um, I think I'm still peaking, but I'll find out when I'm, when the, the real hard, the hard challenge comes into place because organizing this set of material for volume two, which covers the years 63 to 66 is incredibly difficult. It's so much more complicated and complex a story than volume one was, which was detailed, but relatively straightforward, quite linear. Mm. And this one is not linear. So how to keep the reader engaged, how to keep the forward propulsion, um, and how to report the detail that needs reporting within uh, an engaging read is, I know I can do it, but I, I know it's going to be harder than it was for Tune In, and that was tricky. Mm. You seem to be driven by an incredible sense of duty. And I remember that really becoming quite apparent the first time we spoke back, I guess, in 2016. I hope this question isn't re redundant, but do you have moments or periods of frustration or beetle fatigue, shall we say? Like, do you hit that wall where it's like, I just need to get away from this for a while. I need to, you know, I don't want to hear any rock music. I just, do you have those moments? How do you stay fresh? How do you stay sort of recharged? Just on a personal level. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, one would imagine that I do suffer moments of beetle fatigue. I like that phrase. <laughs> um, and that I need to recharge and, and get right away from it. But the actual reality is I don't. I don't suffer the fatigue and I don't need to get away from it. Um, it's just the way I'm cut. It's just my DNA is, is that um, this is this is something I can do and this is something I'm highly motivated to do, highly motivated, highly self-motivated. Um, I mean, no one has to drag me out of bed at six o'clock to go to my desk. I'm, I'm there. And if I'm really busy, it'll be before six. And... Um, some people have heard me say this before, but I try to do a double day every day. Um, my, my eldest son says I do a five to nine working day, um, meaning 16 hours, not four. Um, I just have that motivation. I do have, you, you, you called it really when you said a sense of duty. I hadn't actually considered that before, but it is exactly that. Um, this is the Beatles story is the best story ever. And I'd say that not as a fan or anything as, as juvenile or as simplistic as that. I, I mean quite simply that in terms of storytelling, the Beatles have the greatest story. 
And you don't need to embellish it in any way. You just need to tell it truthfully. And it is breathtaking, riveting, surprising, delightful, incredibly funny, at times incredibly sad, poignant, interesting, innovative. And I am not happy with the biographies of the Beatles. I'm not going to go into too much detail. I, I've already had one of the authors, one a, a biographer, pull me apart in public um, for what he thought was me being overly critical and ungrateful uh, um, of, of things. But um, I think TuneIn showed it. TuneIn, which had in its fullest form 1700 pages up to their breakthrough and it doesn't drag for a minute it, it it's not boring because these are as i often say interesting people doing interesting things all the time and it's embedded in our culture and not just this culture in my home country which was the beatles home country but the most countries they are resonating somehow or other more or as much 50 years on as they did at the time not more but certainly strongly um and differently so i don't want to go to my grave um knowing i could have got this story right for posterity for future study for future appreciation and enjoyment for future criticism if you like i'm not trying to say the beatles were great i'm just putting the story down on paper um if I die without doing that, it'll, it'll, no one else is going to do it. And at least not like this. And so there is a duty there. There's a duty to this thing that has been enriching my own personal life for 55 years now. Um, and which I, of which I can never tire. So duty, yes, absolutely a duty, a duty to, a duty to the Beatles who, who, don't always treat me as well as they could personally um but but that doesn't matter that really doesn't matter it doesn't matter how they treat me uh good or bad um it's just about getting the story right just even despite them sometimes <laughs> i have a perfect follow-up question just give me one second okay we're good are you aware of the paul mccartney song early days Paul McCartney's song Early Days, yes, it was on his last studio album called New that came out, I think the week that TuneIn came out by coincidence in 2013. Yes, I know it. How do you read that song? Did you interpret that as a bit of a, I suppose, a dig at you? Just because the lyric is to refresh everyone's memory, what is it? You know, the, the basic gist is kind of you weren't, you weren't there. You, you, last time we spoke, you imitated George Harrison saying to you, you weren't the... You weren't the... <laughs> Which, and George did say that to me, yeah. to my face. Um, and George was quite critical of, of me over a number of years. Um, but it wasn't me personally he was digging at. It was, it was what I represent, which is, you know, so-called experts who think they know my, you know, they think they know my life and, and they don't know it which is an absolutely understandable position to take. Um, I mean, when TuneIn came out, uh, a, a chap got in touch with me and said, could he write my biography? You know, the biography of a biographer. And not only did I say, I'd rather you didn't, or at least not yet or whatever, um, but I, I, I remember thinking, I mean, how the hell is he going to understand me and get my life story right? Um, that must have been quite the... Uh 
just a kind of a surreal experience for you? It was it was odd, but um, I do get quite a lot of quite an interesting mail back. Um, I, I was flattered, obviously. Uh, who wouldn't be? But but I, I knew that a it, it, it's premature, or, or indeed should never be done. Um, but but certainly um, this person wasn't going to be the right person. So and no disrespect, because I don't even know him, but I could just tell by the approach that it wasn't right. So I understood always where George was coming from. Um, didn't necessarily welcome him saying it to my face. Um, but, uh, you know, that is who I'm dealing with here. Um, so Paul McCartney, early days. Yes, he writes, he, the song is about, you know, essentially it's the same theme. You weren't there, so how do you know? Um, it was only me and me and my friends is the gist of that one. He wasn't having a dig at me only. Yeah. I think I'm part of a mix in his head. Um, I'm quite an astute watcher of Paul McCartney, um, more so than most people, I would say, because not only have I been watching him for a very long time, but also I look, I think I look differently. You know, um, and I worked for him for a long time and got to know the man and got to see the things that riled him and got to see how he dealt with things that riled him. And I remember when he was, it was when he first started doing Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite on tour. Now, I don't follow it closely enough anymore to know what tour that was, 2011 or 12 maybe, in that period. And a whole load of people jumped up and said, you can't do that, it's a John Lennon song. First of all, no one, as he would rightly consider, no one can tell me what songs I can do and what songs I can't do. And even if it is a John Lennon song, does that mean he can't do it? Some people have a dividing line in their heads that isn't necessarily there in his. So he was pissed off with that. But also he was particularly pissed off because he remembered being at John's house in Weybridge in 1967 um, when John was writing Mr. Kai and helping him with it. He was not only present watching him, but he was engaged in the process. Because the way they did things, um, a lot of people misunderstand the Lennon and McCartney songwriting method, methodology, which varied through the years. But uh, but at this point in time, one of them would have the idea and often the, the, the first verse and maybe as far as the chorus. And then you look to your partner, where does it go from here? So you've set the theme in both in lyrically and musically, but you're still reaching out to the other, McCartney to Lennon or Lennon to McCartney for, you know, to get over the finishing line. And that was Mr. Kite. So Paul bristled because he had, as far as he was concerned, he had been involved in the writing of that song. It wasn't just a John Lennon song as the history books have it. So that annoyed him, and I watched him be annoyed by it in an interview or two and read a quote or two, and I thought, ah, oh, a raw nerve has been touched here. Mm. Uh, and I think that song is the result of lots of people telling him you, this, wasn't how, this was how it was when he knows that it wasn't. But the, the fact that it came out the same week as my book was a delicious coincidence. Um, but I wouldn't flatter myself that it was just about me. He and I, all, I mean, I worked for him for a long time and he and I always got on great. Um, and um, he, he respected me to whatever degree, I'm not sure. But there was a respect there. Look, he employed me because he knew I could deliver. 
So, um, and then probably stopped employing me for <laughs> some other reason. But um, no, it's um, it's it's hard when other people we we can't put ourselves exactly in their position of of other people telling them what it was they did in their life when they didn't do it, or vice versa. Sure. Yeah. Just to go full beetle nerd here for a minute, which I suppose we're <laughs> we've, we've already well well past that point. I often wonder. I don't know if you have any insight into this at all, but I often wonder because John has been sort of lionized and sainted in a way since his death. I mean, to many people, he's sort of the icon of peace and love, and he can do no wrong. When in reality, he was a deeply flawed, complicated man, like like all of us, I guess. I wonder to the extent to which I wonder the extent to which that annoys Paul. Um, I wonder, I wonder, you know, obviously I'm sure he's misses his friend and all the rest. Of course, he, you know, deeply, deeply traumatic experience for him to, to lose his friend. But in the years since, it's like, it seems that many people put John way above Paul in the category of, you know, who was more important to the band. I wonder how much that digs at him. Do you have any sense of that? Um, first of all, I think that the years of John Lennon being lionized, and I'll touch on this in the second part of the answer, but the years in which John Lennon was lionized are behind us now. I think actually um, there's a lot of misinterpretation and misunderstanding of John Lennon. And I find, I'm beginning to find that people out there in 2018 who judge things on by today's standards, who judge yesterday by today, and we do an awful lot of that. Yes, we do. Um, far too much of it, really. Um, you know, the morals of yesterday, the standards of yesterday, the things that were perfectly permissible yesterday that are no longer so today are judged retrospectively. And John Lennon is beginning, I, I think, to fall into into that category where people are disliking him for things he did. It's um, very interesting. I wonder if that is a... English thing because I don't I don't have a sense of that but I wonder if it's it's different over here or something. We're a, we're a pretty critical lot in England um, and that's part of our DNA and it's part of the Beatles' own DNA because they're British. So, um, but generally and and because John has now been gone for thirty seven and a half years, um, we have more than one generation who, who did not know the man. Um, in fact, let's say that if you didn't know him, if, if you were 10 years old when he was killed um, and you're now nearly 50, you barely know the guy. I mean, he wasn't even in Britain in those last 10 years, nine years of his life. So I think John Lennon is becoming less understood. And with that is becoming a kind of an intolerance with certain aspects of his personality, which may appear from the distance of time to be less savory than they appeared at the time. For example, on stage, and you can look at this in lots of film, John used to do this, this act, this kind of cripple act um, of, of um, clapping his hands but missing them and stamping his feet like, like stamping his feet like an, you know, like an able-bodied person except in a kind of spasmodic, um, erratic way. Um, at the time... That was not an issue at all for anybody. He did it on the Beatles' first huge British TV appearance, Sunday night at the London Palladium, our Ed Sullivan show, if you like. Um, 
No one said a word about it. It wasn't mentioned in the newspapers. It wasn't mentioned on the radio or television. There were no, as far as I can see, no letters written about it. No one complained. No one went off the Beatles. It didn't in, in any way affect their rise. Now it would be death to do that. Oh, without question. And so clips of film in which he's doing that, they look a bit odd now in 19, in 50 years on in 2018, or indeed any time in the last 25 years, but they didn't look odd then. And you can't really judge then by now's standards, at least not accurately, um, because he didn't mean to be offensive, which is why no one took offense. And indeed, he wasn't the only one doing that kind of thing. Um, anyway, long answer. Um, Paul McCartney. I think Paul is, has come to terms now with where John is at nearly 40 years after his assassination. But there's no question that it affected Paul quite a lot in the first five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 12 years maybe after John was killed until the early 90s there were quite a lot of obvious signs of his irritation mm. um, publicly visible irritation at John's lionization um, it was visible that night when he came out of the recording studio and gave his first piece to camera his first reaction to John's death when he said it's a drag whilst chewing, casually chewing on gum, um, which upset quite a lot of people. But I'm a McCartney watcher. I could see that he was irritated. He was irritated by what he'd been watching on television in the recording studio, the news bulletins, the lionization had begun. The promotion of John Lennon, which is inevitable in death whenever anybody dies, um, to the um, detriment of, you know, while one goes up, another goes down. It's the balance of life. So Paul, John was being promoted, Paul was being relegated, and he didn't like it. And it, that footage, too, you see irritation. When I see that as a man who doesn't know Paul, I see shock. I mean, he looks like he's just seen someone get hit by a car or something. Like He, he looks absolutely shocked. He is shocked. He, I mean, he had lost. he had lost someone that he loved. And, we, you know, we all know what that feels like. Um, but he was also exhibiting irritation. And it came out in this way that, that made him appear to be flip. Yeah. Um, I mean, when we lose loved ones, we don't have cameras thrust in our faces. Yeah. But like I said, if you're a McCartney watcher, you, you get to see beyond the surface and I could see that he was irritated and that irritation lasted for years um, through the Ray Coleman books through the Albert Goldman books certainly through Philip Norman's shout which he detested really um, I mean he absolutely detested that book and for quite rightly so because Philip Norman quite ridiculously detested Paul McCartney in the writing of it mm. which was insane um, you know to actually make Paul McCartney out to be this 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 ludicrous lightweight you know which was which was so stupid um so he i mean f Paul called that book shite uh, and called him Norma Phillips um and I had helped Philip write the book and and was I was embarrassed with that attitude but I still liked the book I still thought it was a good book and I liked Philip as a person um then um but uh Paul didn't. 
And you could see why, if you read that book, you can understand why Paul was mightily annoyed by it. And that really extended for the whole of the 80s. Um, and eventually it calmed down. And I think he's, he's well over it now. Let me ask you a question about interviewing people. Yeah. <laughs> as, I, as I sit here and interview you. Yeah. So just for, as an example, I prepared for this interview today, sitting with you face-to-face, -face, differently than I would prepare for my interview with you when we were on Skype. Obviously, face-to-face -face is, I think, for my money, it's just always so much better. You can go different places in the conversation. You can actually see the person there. You can respond to their energy. You can, you know, it, Skype is a lot different. Yeah. And as one who interviews a lot of people for this book, do you have any kind of advice or best practices um, for approaching interviews? Or is everyone just very, very different? Do you prepare for each interview very different? Or do you just simply get people to sort of, you know, ask open-ended questions and get them to sort of open up and, and share their story? What, what's, your, what's your take on that? Um, hmm. I prefer to interview face-to-face -face every time. Um, Skype is, is a good second. It's a, you know, a new thing that you know, hasn't been there for very long in the, life, life, the lives of writers, but we now have this opportunity to see people who are far away. And that is better than a phone call, which is you know, a third, the third way. Uh, email interviews, I don't like because you, there's a formalization to the, the typing of an answer uh, and you don't have the opportunity to, to, to shape it in the way that you can in dialogue, in spoken word. So I very much try to avoid email interviews. Phone interviews, yes. Skype, quite a lot of these because people, you know, I live in England and I go to America to interview people from time to time, but sometimes you've just got to jump in and do what you can when you can. But where possible, face-to-face -face produces best results because of the technique I use, which is to um, dress the area in which we're meeting with materials that will help propel the person back into the right time zone. So if I'm talking, let's say I'm talking to a woman in her 70s who was a teenager in the cavern seeing the Beatles at lunchtime, Monday, Wednesday and Friday, um, I will have Liverpool Echo newspapers, pictures of the Beatles in the cavern, some issues of Mersey Beat, some tickets, some fan club cards, um, pictures of the houses, pictures of the cavern. And it never fails to produce good results because it, 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 takes, pe it, it takes people right back to the moment and it unlocks memories without fail, I would say, and it sounds self-aggrandizing, but without fail, every time I interview someone, whoever it might be, they, they, at the end of it, the person will say, God, I've thought about things that I haven't thought about for years um, because of this unlocking process. They will look at a picture and go, oh, that's my friend. Oh, that's the coat that she bought in Lewis's. Oh, I was with her that day. In fact, we bumped into Paul that day when we were in the shop. Well, I would never have thought to ask, did you ever see Paul while you were out shopping? And she may not have thought to mention it. But because we've seen the picture connection 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 and out it comes this story is unlocked that the person themselves may not have thought about for a very long time how and why did you start doing that did someone else give you that idea or did you just kind of come to that on your own 
Um, well, my wife is a, a psychotherapist, and uh, since meeting her, I've been more familiarized with certain unlocking processes. Actually, I, I think I came up with that on my own. But when I told her about it, she said, oh, yes, this is a process that can be used in psychotherapy. So um, it was in the mix of, of probably my marital relationship that these ideas took shape. But it undoubtedly helps. I mean, it helps massively. And I would recommend it to anybody interviewing anyone about any subject. Um, you know, sometimes I'll play music or we'll watch a video of something just before we start. Um, and if it's by Skype, if it's a remote interview, I'll send them things as JPEGs or PDFs or video files to, you know, have a look at this before we speak. Um, I also have an outstanding collection. I, 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 it sounds immodest, but I must have, because it's my job, I must have the world's greatest collection of Beatles documentation. Um, and I can invariably find something that um, is associated with the person I'm talking to. And it might be something they haven't seen for years, a letter they wrote or a letter they received or a picture with them in it or a bit of film that, that they're in and they may not have realized it. So I will always share everything I've got with that person, which, again, helps send them back into the zone and produces a better quality interview. Yeah. That's fascinating. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> Please, yeah. That's, that's great. I mean, I think whatever whatever discipline you're doing, if you whether you're making a film or a TV program, radio, that enriching process is always going to bring results. Yeah, I don't doubt it. Take me back. I, I, the first time I interviewed you a couple of years ago, you said something that I didn't follow up on and I wish I had. You were talking about getting your start as a writer in the late 70s. And you said, I believe exactly, you said, I had things that, to say about the Beatles um, that I wanted to say that weren't being said. What were those things? Um, I, I've, I've, I was born to research. I, I, just, I, I, I knew instinctively how to do it, how to, how to look things up, where to find what I was looking for. And um, my first research commission was actually from Philip Norman um, when he was writing what turned out to be Shout. I don't think it had that title. Um, and without his propelling me, um, I, I, I probably would have got there anyway because I was always, you know, a Beatles guy and I was always a researcher. But he set me some challenges. Um, he wanted me to find out the backstory of how the Beatles began broadcasting on the BBC. He wanted me to find out... Um, the date that Lennon met McCartney because he sensed I think that in the existing books it wasn't right um, and he wanted me to find out about a tour of Scotland that the Beatles did with a singer called Johnny Gentle so I went and became his researcher and um, part-time as it were and found out these things for him and then carried on I satisfied his queries he didn't need any more information but I had the bug and I carried on and my inquiries into the Johnny Gentle tour, the process of doing that eventually led me to researching all of the Beatles live appearances. Every time they'd stepped on a stage in front of an audience from when John Lennon formed his skiffle group until Candlestick Park in San Francisco in 1966. 
And that became my first book. Well, when you do research like that, what are you going to do with it? Philip Norman didn't want it, and his book Shout was out by then. I mean, I was still doing it. So the obvious thing was to write it up myself. So I started to write it. And I hadn't, um, any, I hadn't done any writing courses, and I wasn't a brilliant writer to begin with by any means. Um, but just through application, um, I, I, I learned how to construct sentences. I learned how to express myself. I learned in particular how to convey detail in a way that engages the reader. Um, and then I just carried on and eventually I found I can write. I can write. In fact, I think I'm a good writer. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of people do say the same. I'm flattered when they do. But you know yourself. I think by, by the same measure by which we have to know when something we're doing is crap, by the same measure we have to know if something we're doing is good. And um, I know when, when things are crap and I know when they're good. And I know now that I'm a confident writer. When you were a kid then, was the dream, if we can call it a dream, did you see yourself as just a researcher or as a historian? Or? No, I didn't have dreams like that. Um, I had a regular job to begin with. I worked at the BBC in clerical positions, although even there I was in the right place because the BBC, <clears throat> particularly in those days, <clears throat> before it started lacerating itself to pieces, which it is doing these days, um, had in-house for the benefit of its staff fantastic library resources so i was researching the beatles as a 16 17 18 year old in my lunch times for no particular purpose um, other than the fact that i was interested in whatever it was i could find so um, but i had no particular idea to become a writer um, and initially i was a researcher for other authors so i i helped philip norman with a couple of his books i did his Beatles book and his Elton John book. I also was Ray Coleman's researcher on his Lennon books, his Brian Epstein book and his Eric Clapton book. Um, and during the course of those years, started to become an author of in, in my own right. Um, in fact, it was Philip Norman was doing, starting his John Lennon book, uh, must have been about 2003, wanted me to be his researcher to you know reunite that team if you like of me doing research and him doing the writing um and it was a, in that very moment when i was deciding to do this trilogy mm. and i had the dilemma which i remember sharing with my literary agent what do i do if i find a piece of you know really great detail i want to keep it for my book and i won't want to share it but i'll have been paid so morally i ought to share it I didn't want to be having those moral dilemmas in my head and my agent said hey you're a writer yourself now you're not anybody else's researcher so you know just do yours so I said no to Philip and embarked on this project Well, there you have it. There's part one of my conversation with Mark Lewison. I hope you enjoyed it. 
And just a quick note before I let you go, well, actually two quick notes. The first note is, if you enjoyed this show and you want me to continue making new episodes, please be sure you subscribe and leave a rating and review on iTunes. That's enormously helpful to me. And secondly, again, if you want to listen to the second half of this conversation, you can go on iTunes or whatever podcast provider you're using. You can find part B of episode one of my conversation with Mark Lewison, where we get into more about the Beatles, more about Mark's uh, work habits. And he also shared some really interesting tips on writing, which I found particularly valuable. So in particular, any writers or creative people out there, I really think you're not going to want to miss part B of episode one uh, with Mark Lewison. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to pick up Mark's book. I really can't recommend it enough. It's called Tune In, and it is probably one of the best music books ever written. I, I'm not kidding. It's, it's that good. It's that absorbing. It's that well-researched and well-written. Be sure you pick up a copy of Mark's book called Tune In. You can find that on Amazon and booksellers all over the place. Otherwise, thank you again for listening. Your support means a great deal to me. Until next time, remember that life is short, so be sure to enjoy every moment. Go out and have yourself a good weekend, day, afternoon. Whatever you're doing, I hope you have a great time. And I'll talk to you again very, very soon. Mm-hmm.